Well, good day, everyone. Thank you so much for being here, and thank you for listening. We're continuing our look at the Christian Scriptures. This is part five in this series, and it's a direct continuation from where we were last week as we started our look at the look of the Bible and what the Bible has to say about morality. And we touched on a general overview of the Old Testament law and the Ten Commandments, but didn't really go into the Ten Commandments specifically. And so today we're going to do that as we look at what is the greatest commandment that emerges from the pages of Scripture. And speaking of laws and commandments, as we currently have it, our United States federal government was established by the U.S. Constitution in 1789. Before that, the United States used a different article of government, actually known as the Articles of Confederation, but the U.S. Constitution, as it stands, is the longest existing charter for government in the world, despite our nation being young compared to many other nations of the world. Now, our lawmakers have not slouched on providing laws for us to follow. While no one really seems to know the exact number of federal laws, the most common number referenced is 300,000. 300,000 federal laws, that's 300,000 laws that you can break that would be treated as a federal crime. Now, this is not enumerating state laws, local laws, corporate laws, school rules, house rules, or any other number of laws and rules we have just in this country to keep people following a certain set of expectations. Indeed, although there would be a lot of redundancy, no doubt we would be into the millions and millions of rules if you were able to sum them all together across this nation. Some laws have been great for the development and posterity of our nation. The Pacific Railway Act of 1862 paved the way for the United States of America to build a transcontinental railroad and telegraph across the entire breadth of the nation. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery. The 17th Amendment allowed regular citizens to vote and directly elect their senators in Congress instead of senators being elected by state legislatures. But there are some, shall we say, silly laws as well. For instance, in the great state of Alabama, there is a law that has made it illegal to drive blindfolded. Don't know why you need a law for that, but Alabama has one. In Arizona, it's illegal for a donkey to sleep in a bathtub. I was curious about this law, and come to find out in the 1920s, a local dam broke that flooded a rancher's home. And this rancher's donkey had become accustomed to sleeping in the bathtub, which filled with water and whisked him miles away. And after working to rescue this particular donkey, the town passed a law that prohibits donkeys from sleeping in the bathtub. Good to hear that the donkey was okay, though. In Kentucky, they have a law in the books that a woman can't marry the same man four times. Three is the limit, at least for the same man. And in Colorado, it's illegal to have a couch on your front porch. So several folks here in our hometown of Rocky Top would have to serve life in prison over that particular statute. As I say, we started a look at the Ten Commandments last week and our look at what the Bible has to say about the moral law. And we're going to finish that examination today. So I would advise you to go back to Exodus 20 and we're going to revisit the famous Ten Commandments, reading some of the same scripture that we read last week. This is Exodus 20 beginning in the very first verse. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. We're going to do what I hope is a swift and meaningful overview of these great commandments, and then bring it to a culmination with the brilliant words of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. He starts by saying, I am the Lord your God. Now, in the ancient world, including Egypt, and if you will recall, this is where the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews, three synonymous ways to refer to the same group of people, they had been brought out of the land of Egypt very recently. And here they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai, hearing this great law come from God. And back in Egypt, men worshipped many gods, but here... Yahweh, as he would have become to be known by the Jewish people, the Lord, the God of Israel, set himself apart from all of these other supposed deities that were present in the land of Egypt. And in these first few words, God reminded and taught Israel essential principles about who he is, his character, and who his nature. And this great teaching of Scripture quickly emerges from God to his people, and this is what is known as the Shema. Later on, this is really fleshed out in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, as we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as signs on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This wasn't merely different from the previous way of thinking and worship that the Hebrews had been reared in while they were in the land of Egypt for many centuries. It was a complete and total revolution. But it was also a return to true original faith in that revolution. One God and only God, the only God, 
they were to worship, not just a god that could be added to the pantheon of other gods, but the one true and only almighty God. And so before God commanded anything of Israel, he reminded them of what he had done for them. And this was a clear foundation. Because of who God is, because of what God had done for them, because of what he's done for us, then he has the right to tell us what to do. And we have the obligation to obey him. Certainly, God gives us the free will to choose to obey him or not, but we are not free to choose the consequences that come from obeying or disobeying him. We follow God because of who he is. He's the source of truth, and he is the source of authority. And therefore, God's first command is a result that follows from who he is and what he has done as he proclaims to them, you shall have no other gods before me. It's believed that John Calvin, one of the famous reformers, said that human nature is like an idle factory that operates constantly, dealing with the temptation to set all kinds of things before or competing with God for his number one place, his preeminent place, I should say, in our life. And failure to obey this command is called idolatry. We are told throughout Scripture to flee adultery. And those lives who are marked by habitual adultery are warned that they will not inherit the kingdom of God because indeed they are not putting Christ first in their life. It's the work of the flesh which, which marks our old way of life instead of the new regenerate life in Christ. And so the second commandment then is you shall not make for yourself any carved image. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. The second command prohibited not only idolatry regarding false gods, but it does overlap with the first commandment, but it forbade making an image of any created thing that we might worship. So now some take this command to prohibit any type of representation of God, such as a painting of Jesus or, any, or something like that, but others emphasize that it's actually the making of the image that we would likely worship, which has been done throughout history in many different cultures and many different people groups. So the prohibition here is to not make an image to bow down to and worship. It doesn't necessarily forbid making an image of something for artistic purposes. God himself, in fact, commanded Israel to make images of cherubim that would be on the Ark of the Covenant and so forth, but it forbids in making images that we would worship and that we would bow down to or somehow aid in worship. The third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So there's at least three ways that we commonly break this command. The profanity, using the name of God in blasphemy or cursing, using it in a capricious, frivolous sort of way, in a superficial way, or hypocrisy, claiming the name of God, but acting in a way that disgraces him. And so Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, communicates the idea of hallowing the, God, the name of God, to have great regard for the holiness of who God is. As he tells us when the disciples asked him, Lord, will you teach us to pray? He said, pray then like this, Our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be your name. And this was a great, important belief of the Jewish people. In fact, they ended up coming and even going to what we might refer to as strange links and traditions to avoid violating this command. In fact, they refused even to write out the word God 
for fear that the paper might be destroyed or that a slip of the pen might dishonor his name. So serious were they at keeping this commandment. Then remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Christians occasionally refer to Sunday as the Sabbath day, but the Sabbath day for the Jewish people would be on Saturday, even more specifically from sundown Friday until sundown Saturday. It was a day of rest for all, and this rest was for the son, the servant, the stranger, even the cattle, God says here. And we usually just take this as a principle of rest, but it's far more important than that. It's something that God is revealing here that could be passed over far too easily. Here, when God mentioned all of these different groups, he's declaring the humanity and the dignity of women, of slaves, and even of strangers, and that they had the same right to a day of rest as the highest-ranking Hebrew person. And this was a radical concept in the ancient world. And the purpose of this not only was rest, but to keep it holy, to make sure that this was a sacred time in their life, a separated time of rest. Now, as we move on from here, it's worth noting that there's a distinguishment between the first four commandments and the remaining six. The first four have to do with our relationship with God. Commandments 5 through 10 have to do with our relationships with fellow people. And the first one we have here is honor your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother. We've made the observation before that younger people, not universally, but oftentimes intentionally distance themselves from their parents and from older people. And not only is this a violation of God's desire, but it results in so much loss. You know, just recently, in fact, just last Wednesday night, Charity and I were so encouraged as we noticed an especially sweet interaction that has developed between some of the young people who have been coming on our Wednesday night ministry and some of the older, more seasoned folks, I suppose you could say, who are there. As they engage in conversation, exchange stories, and show a genuine interest in one another's life. And there's real discipleship taking place there, even though we may not realize the importance of it. It certainly is important. But to honor one's parents includes to prize them, to care for them. And this command is given to children, but not only while they are children. And then we have this interesting addition to this command. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long. The Apostle Paul repeats this in Ephesians, that this is the first commandment with a promise. And while this doesn't necessarily mean that a person will literally live longer, though it could mean that, it's a general principle that's good for all society, that the young are to honor and respect their elders, and particularly their parents. Rebellion is costly, and people pay a great price for rebellion against their mother and their father. The sixth commandment, and we'll go over these last few rather quickly, as they're incredibly practical and blunt and direct in the commandments that come from God. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And so in Hebrew, as well as in English, there's a distinction between to kill and to murder. As opposed to killing, murder is the taking of life without any type of legal justification or moral justification. God is the giver and sustainer of life, and to take a life out of evil and hatred is, of course, strictly forbidden. The seventh command, you shall not commit adultery. 
So more here than just the act itself, Jesus carefully expanded the heart of this commandment. It prohibits a, a person, a man in particular, from looking at a woman and lusting for her, where we commit adultery in our heart, in our mind, and yet perhaps do not have the direness to actually do the act. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, another important foundation for human society, establishing the right to your own property. And in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, Paul gives us the solution to stealing. He says, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him work, let him labor, working with his hands to do what is good, that he may have something to give him who has a need. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's interesting in the Bible, and it's very cautionary, that Satan is always there to encourage a lie. Jesus himself was the victim of a false witness. The commentator Redpath says, How strange it is that we have ever come to think that the Christian maturity is shown by the ability to speak our minds, whereas it is actually really expressed in controlling our tongues. And may I say from personal experience that controlling my tongue is much more difficult to do than speaking my mind. The New Testament puts it simply, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. That's Colossians 3. Lying and false representations belong to our old way of life, the way of life before we came to know Christ, not the new one that we have in Jesus. And finally, the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. The first nine commandments focus more on the things that we do. The tenth deals straight with the heart and its desires. Literally, the word covet here means to pant after. An odd way to think about it, perhaps, but covetousness works like this. The eyes look upon something, the mind admires it, and we want it to go after it, and we move to possess it. Now, we may not go through all of those steps to covet, but it's a desire that can sneak into our lives and be destructive. It speaks of a dissatisfaction with what we have and believing that we need or must have something better. Jesus gave a warning about this. He said, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. And so this concludes our flyby overlook, if you will, of the Ten Commandments. And from the perspective of the entire Bible, we can say that the law of God has three great purposes and uses. It served as a guardrail. They kept mankind on a straight path, a moral path. It served as a reflection, showing us our own failures, our sin, and our need for a Savior. And it served as a guide, showing us our heart and the desire for God, for His people. Now, all of these are wonderful, but I want to tie this up with something that Jesus said in Matthew 22, something that we did also look at last week. This is Matthew 22, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So as we move into some takeaways here, 
A question that inevitably someone might wonder is this, are we still under the Ten Commandments? Now the answer may surprise you, but allow me to explain it all before you jump to a conclusion based on what I'm about to say. Are we still under the Ten Commandments? The answer is no. And the reason why is something greater than the Ten Commandments has come. Indeed, someone greater than the Ten Commandments have come has come. Now notice in the conclusion of the initial Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 as that narrative that the, we read that the people stood far off. Their response was one of fear. Now some of you know the stories that occur after God delivers the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus and throughout some of the other first books of the Bible. Shortly after this, Moses leaves them for a while and his brother Aaron is in charge, and during this time they make a golden calf, an idol, that they bowed down and worshipped. So Moses, under God's direction, gives more laws. Over time, the people continue to rebel and to be obstinate in sin, and so more laws are given. And this pattern continues for quite some time. And by the conclusion of the first five books of the Bible, the most commonly accepted number of laws is 613. 613 laws in the first five books of the Bible. And near the close of what's called the Torah in Deuteronomy 30, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Moses gives some final messages to the people. And he says something very interesting and prophetic. He says that if they're going to follow God's laws that they keep breaking over and over again, they would need transformed hearts. Now the next section of books in the Jewish tradition after the book of Deuteronomy are the books of the prophets, even including the historical books, and they look back on the entire story of the Bible. Ezekiel says that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's Spirit would have to transform their hard hearts and give them soft hearts. The prophet Jeremiah said that when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, that they would be written deep on their hearts. And Isaiah promised a future leader, a redeemer, a Messiah, who would lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now, the Jewish tradition of all of these books, once again, are called the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, the Hebrew people, who turns out themselves need a new heart. And Jesus came to cast out fear and restore what had been lost. So fast forward now to our Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, as he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now what does he mean here, to fulfill the law? Well, in Matthew 22, Jesus told this young man that all the law, the greatest command could be fulfilled by loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others. The great command. Now, our first response would likely be, as it is for me, well, that sounds simple enough. We all want to love, after all. Everybody wants to love. But Jesus points out that, what, that even though we think we want to love, showing this love, the love of God with the heart of God, is a lot more demanding and difficult than we might think that it is. Jesus quotes part of the Ten Commandments at one point during the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he adds 
that when we harbor and nurture resentment and hatred against someone, that we are violating God's moral law because we're not treating that person with love. Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our enemies. So even though this command perhaps seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not equipped on its own to fulfill even this command of God to love others. And if that was where the story ended, that on our own we are incapable of loving others the way that God would have us to, that we are incapable of our own redemption, then indeed it would be very sad and we wouldn't have much reason for hope. But in God's amazing grace, the story did not end there. Where Israel failed, Jesus brought the story to its fulfillment. Where we fail, Jesus fulfills and extends this offer of grace and new life to us. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others, and he showed all nations what God is truly like. And he did this through acts of compassion, through mercy, through grace, and ultimately by loving his enemies, even into death on a cross. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's Spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law to love God and love their neighbor. And so this fulfills the story of the law, the story of the prophets, or in the words of the great apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. And I'll close with an expanded word from the apostle Paul from Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how do we receive this righteousness? We must be born again. It is a spiritual birth, a supernatural birth, a supernatural regeneration accomplished by the Holy Spirit of God. This past Wednesday, we referred to this salvation, this imputing of righteousness from Christ as a gift from God. And I said, if I offer you a gift, what is the only thing you have to do? And the answer came quickly from one of the sweet girls who was there, she simply put out her hand and said, Take it. The forgiveness of sin, the new life that Christ brings. You may not have all the answers, and certainly the people uh, of this church is prayerfully trying to reach will not have the answers. I know I didn't when I became a follower of Christ. But Jesus desires to give us a new heart. He desires to give the people in our community a new heart, to love God and love others. We can't do it on our own. But the beauty that emerges from the scripture is the truth that we don't have to. We don't have to do it on our own. Christ extends his hand and says, take my hand and I will lead you. I will guide you. I will redeem you. I will make you my son. I will make you my daughter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's not easy being us. We tend to sin and stray from you. So, God, we ask that you will help us to draw near to you, and please draw near to us. We want to thank you for the words you have given us. These commandments were not meant to restrict, but to liberate, to give life, 
and to give it more abundantly. Lord, I know many, even most, who are gathered here have accepted the gift of salvation from Jesus, but I ask that any who have not, any that are here, that their hearts would be drawn to you, and as your people we can gently guide them to you. I pray the same for our community, that you would move throughout our community, our nation, and our world, and draw the hearts of people to you. May we love you with all that we are, the totality of our hearts, minds, souls, and strengths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.